good to be with you again today. Uh, you know, this last week's been kind of interesting. We lost a, a giant in Christendom, uh, you know, and uh, I, um, I actually went to uh, one of the Billy Graham Crusades in San Diego when I was 12 or 13 years old, and I almost went forward. There was that Balboa Stadium. That thing is torn down now, but they... Um, almost went forward there, and I didn't do it. I became a Christian four or five years later, but I'll never forget the impact uh, that that crusade had on me. And when I consider, you know, uh, those three individuals of George Beverly Shea and uh, Cliff Barrows and Billy Graham, you know, uh, Bev Shea died at 104, and Billy Graham was 99, and Cliff Barrels was in his mid-90s, and uh, so we uh, are seeing the end of an era here, and one that God had his finger on, and uh, uh, it's just interesting. My wife and her family uh, were very close to, to uh, you know, that was part of the generation that her parents were part of, and so they were close to Billy Graham and wanted her to go to Wheaton College, so that, because that's where Billy Graham went, and uh, she defected and went to Westmont instead. <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, so our hearts are, are somewhat sobered by that as well. Just one other piece of information. I'll be with you today, obviously, and next week as well. But next Sunday, late afternoon, I'll be um, I'll flying to India. And I'll be in Nepal and India for the better part of two weeks. And it's been part of a mission organization that I've... Uh, uh, been on the chair, I've been the board, on the board for uh, 30 years now. And we have work in Japan and Bangladesh and Cambodia and Myanmar and India and Nepal and the Czech Republic and Budapest and Bucharest and Romania as well. So it's, it's grown and it's working with college students, uh, men and women alike, and having discipleship centers all over Europe and, and uh, South Asia. And uh, so I go and do some teaching and check on how things are going and make several stops along the way, spend a lot of time in the air. And uh, so I'll miss you, but I'll look forward to coming back. I, you know, so I, I will be here next week. And today we're, we're going to uh, take a break from James. Uh, we'll come back to it uh, for this week and next week, and I'd like to look at the Old Testament book of Esther. It's buried there. Um, we remember Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. So if you find Psalms and turn back a couple of books, that's where we'll be today. And it's really a part of a two-part message, so we'll finish it uh, next week. But we're going to look at ten chapters, two today and eight to next week. And it's a magnificent story. It's an unusual book in the canon of Scripture. You know, when we think about what Scripture is all about, this, this book is somewhat uh, different. Uh, the name of God is not mentioned in any of the ten chapters. Uh, Esther is never quoted in the New Testament. Uh, in these chapters, there's no mention of prayer or uh, anything that's supernatural. And this is the only Old Testament book that does not have a, an ancient manuscript that was found in the caves of Qumran there in Israel. Uh, so uh, 
even though God is not necessarily, let's put it this way, God is, even though God is not mentioned, his name is present on every single page. And it was Matthew Henry who said, the great commentator, if the name of God is not there, his finger is. Now, <clears throat> let me put it in a little bit of historical context for you. The book's setting takes place uh, around the mid-400s BC in the Medo-Persian Empire. You may recall in around 605 BC that Nebuchadnezzar came from Babylon, which would be over by the Fertile Crescent, Tigris and Euphrates over there, and he conquered Judah. And he took back a number of captives to Babylon. Among them would be Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These and a lot of captives were taken back to Babylon. Seventy years after Nebuchadnezzar conquered Judah, the Medes and the Persians conquered Babylon. And they told the Jews at that time that they could go back to their homeland. And some of them did. Nehemiah was one of them. He came back specifically to build the walls, and others came back as well. But most of the Jews chose to stay in the land of their exile. Uh, they were prospering in business and agriculture. Their second-generation families were there. So they did not come back. Jerusalem looked like a lot of work. The, the whole city was in rubble during that time, and so they chose to remain in uh, the land of their captivity. Now again, as I mentioned, this is a two-part message that we're gonna be looking at today. And one of the things that you're going to notice is an inordinate amount of attention that is given to physical beauty. And really, things haven't changed all that much in the last 2,500 years. It's true back then, it's true today. You know, Time Magazine had, a, had an article a few years ago about what that magazine implied are the most envied women in the world. And this is what they say, and I quote, supermodels represent a new breed. They're mannequins with sex appeal. Any fresh-faced 16-year-old who hopes to blossom into a supermodel must be at least five feet, nine inches, bone thin, full lips, high cheekbones, large eyes, long legs, and a straight but not too prominent nose. And then the article goes on to say, who you are is how you look. And we live in a culture that believes that. God, however, has another slant. And today we're going to be introduced to a woman named Esther. And Esther uh, won a beauty contest. She was chosen to, to be queen on the basis of her appearance alone. But as we'll see, God had something more for her, was calling her to a big, big life. Now let me begin reading chapter 1, verse 1. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to, to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was in Susa, the capital, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants. And, and, and army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and princes of his provinces being in his presence when he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for 180 days. 
And so what uh, the author wants us to know is that King Ahasuerus, and by the way, Ahasuerus was his title. His real name was Xerxes. He was a man of immense power. He had an empire that uh, went from Asia Minor south to Africa and then east all the way to India. And so he was a man who was so powerful he was used to getting his way. Uh, the writer of the book, however, uses a, a tremendous amount of skill, uh, of satire, of hyperbole, uh, to give us a picture of a king who simply wants to show off his greatness. He's ostentatious, he's preoccupied with appearance, but he really has no strength of character. What you discover in this book is that other people were constantly making up his mind for him. Now our first glimpse of him is uh, he's giving a banquet. He's throwing a party. In fact, there are three banquets that are mentioned in the first nine verses of this book. And uh, this first banquet uh, uh, included all of the VIPs, kind of the heavyweights, uh, the princes, the, the uh, governors, and so forth. They were invited to this banquet. Now, did you catch in the reading how long the banquet went on? 180 days, so you had six months of serious partying going on there during, during that time. Uh, the, uh, uh, that was the first banquet. Uh, the second banquet, uh, you know, when the, the, let me put it this way. When the king, when it was over, he launches into another party, and this, this banquet was for the entire capital. Uh, the rich, the poor, the uh, small, the big, whatever, everybody in the capital was invited. And uh, the, to see just the greatness of Ahasuerus. And it speaks about the, the, go the goblets in verse 7. And it said that they are not only outrageously expensive, but each one is absolutely unique. The amount of drinking at uh, this bash uh, was according to the king's bounty. So the drinking was totally undistrained unrestrained. And so what Ahasuerus did is he turned the palace into something of a frat house. Now in verse 9, we read about a third banquet as well, and this is given by Queen Vashti, and this is for the women of the palace. In this case, there are no excess, no uh, juvenile behavior. It was restrained and very mature. Now look at verse 10. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, and then in verse 11 it says that the king sent for Vashti. See, he had been showing off all of his prized possessions, his goblets, his tapestries, his pallets. Now all he wanted to do was show off his ultimate, ultimate possession. And so he says, Vashti, come on in. Now again, knowing the king as you do, what do you think that he wanted to show off in Vashti? Maybe her mental acumen, have her do some math problems for the people that were there? <laughs> no, he wanted to show off her beauty. She was amazingly gorgeous. And so what he's doing here is kind of treating her like a prize steer at a 4-H club. He says, come on in here, you know? And she, uh, she does an amazing thing. She says, no, I'm not going to do it. She's disobeying the king. Come parade myself before a group of vulgar men after seven days of Miller time. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> not going to do it. And so, uh, so he's on the horns of a dilemma, you know. Uh, 
you know, what's going to happen with this thing? So what Ahasuerus does is he consults his sages to kind of get a reading on this. And there's a great deal of irony here. Again, he's the most powerful man in the world. Anything that he says happens to go. But he asked the sages, what am I going to do with my wife? She won't do what I tell her to do anymore. And there was one of his advisors, a man named Mamukin. And he said, you know, if word gets out, if word spreads about this, it's going to upset the entire social structure of the empire. Women are no longer, wives are no longer going to consider themselves to be slaves of their husband. I mean, things could really unravel here. And so Mamukin, the advisor to the king, gives him some advice. And this would be chapter 1, verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written on the laws of, the per of Persia and Media, so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti should come no more into the presence of King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. And when the king's edict, which he shall make, is heard throughout the kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. Well, this pleased the king. And so word went out, and Vashti was disposed. So we move into chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And he thinks, you know what? I need to get a new queen. And so he seeks some advice from his servants. Now, this wasn't his cabinet. These weren't his highly intellectual guys. The servants were his bodyguards. And they were going to give the king advice on, uh, on what, needs, uh, what he really needs in a king. And so these high testosterone young men uh, are going to give him advice. Again, what do you think might be the number one criterion for the, the queen, new queen? Appearance. It's got to be her looks. And so... Uh, Anyway, they said in verse 2, uh, let beautiful young virgins be brought for the king and let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom that they may gather every beautiful young virgin, virgin to Susa, the capital, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who has charge of the woman, and let their cosmetics be given them, and let them... Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And the matter pleased the king, and he did accordingly. So the woman, the new queen, was needed to be physically attractive. She needed to be sexually desirable. She needed to be able to turn the heads of all of the men in the kingdom. That's the kind of queen that Ahasuerus wanted. There was a young Jewish girl that was affected by this. And her name is Esther. And we're told that she was adopted by her older cousin, a guy named Mordecai. And he became her guardian. And the text tells us that Esther was fair and beautiful. And the text also implies that Esther did not enter into this contest voluntarily. She was conscripted. She was drafted into this beauty contest. 
And in this contest, Esther made it past, if you please, the prelims and on to the finals. And the finalists were then paraded before the king, and the preparation was elaborate. Now, just a, a little quick survey here, and this is just for the women in our congregation here. And some of you got to go back in time because most of the youth have slipped out to their own thing. But let's say go back in time to the time when you were a young single woman and interested in a fellow, and he invites you out on a date. Now, not just a normal date, kind of a formal date, like you know, winter formal or prom or something like this. Just a quick show of hands. How many of you uh, ladies uh, have ever taken at least uh, one time in your life uh, more than 15 minutes or so to prepare for a date? Okay. A quick show of hands here. Okay. Okay. You're taking that. that, that that's good. It, you know, and, the, and obviously the preparation would include things like bathing and hair and makeup and wardrobe selection, accessories and fragrance and all, and all nine yards. Okay. Second question. How many of you have spent more than an hour getting ready for a big date. Just, okay, so a few honest, a few shy, okay. All right. Uh, third question, how many of you have spent more time getting ready for the date than on the date itself? How many of you had more fun getting ready for the date than the date itself? Okay, right, a lot of honest people. I hope it wasn't a husband or anything like that. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, look at the prep time uh, for preparing to be the date queen, if you please, of Ahasuerus. Verse 12, chapter 2, verse 12. Now when the turn of each young lady came to go into King Ahasuerus after the end of her 12 months under the regulations for the women, after the days of their beautification were completed as follows, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and the cosmetics for women. That's a lot of pressure for a first date. You know, 12 months to adorn the outward appearance in order to please a juvenile king. Now, Esther is presented as, uh, by the writer as an example of just model of modesty and restraint. Verse 13, the young lady would go in to the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And then verse 15, and when the turn of Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her in as his daughter, came to go into the king, she did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. In other words, she didn't get caught up in all of the gimmicks of beautification. She didn't bother with it. But she wins anyway. And verse 17 says... And the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now, what do you think Ahasuerus did next? He threw a party. It says in verse 18, Then the king gave a great banquet, and this was Esther's banquet, for all his princes and all of his servants, 
and the two of them live happily ever after. Not exactly. Because there's a twist here. There's a twist. The king had a right-hand man, a guy named Haman. And he was mortally offended by Esther's guardian, and that would be Mordecai. And he says, I'm going to kill every Jew in the Medo-Persian Empire. That's what he was going to do because he was just corrected, so to speak. And uh, there's only one person that's in the kingdom that has the ear of the king. The last hope for all of the people, all of the Jews, all of God's people living in Persia, the last hope was Esther herself. Uh, and we're going to discover and ask the question, is she just a beauty queen? Or is she something a whole lot more? And really, it's one of the most magnificent stories in all of Scripture. It's uh, perhaps at the top of my list. And we're going to look at that next week. Uh, it's magnificent. In the remaining minutes, what I'd like to do is comment on the two questions that emerge from this story. Uh, how do you follow God in a world that says who you are is how you look? And I want to frame it in the form of two questions, and how we answer those questions will reveal, uh, first, our attitude towards ourselves and what we value, secondly, our attitude towards others and the priority of community, and thirdly, our attitude toward God and our acceptance of his sovereignty. So the first question is in your outline. Do I treat people on the basis of how they look? And it's part of being human to kind of naturally do something like that. I think even in the Old Testament time, there was a, Saul, was, God was ready to replace Saul with a new king. And he, he told Samuel, the prophet, to go to the house of Jesse and choose the next king of Israel, or to, to find the next king of Israel. And he, inter, he interviews Eliab the oldest son of, uh, of, of um, he's not David's bro oldest brother, let's put it that way, uh, of Jesse, the father of Jesse. And uh, he interviews him, and he is tall, he is handsome, he has all kinds of charisma. And Samuel says, this is the guy. And God says to Samuel, do you remember what he said to Samuel? Hey, you don't need, he's not the guy, I've rejected him. All you're doing is looking at the appearance, but God looks at the heart. And it would be really interesting if somehow we could make a transfer when we meet people, when we talk to people, converse with people, is to see the heart. Not so much every other aspect, but see the heart. Want to know them, how they tick, what's going on, where life is at for them. It's just looking at the heart and not just the appearance only. Well, that would be the key. Now, our culture says uh, who you are is how you look. And uh, some of you possibly have been damaged by that. Uh, some husbands have been cruel to their wives in this area. Uh, some of you parents ache for your own children because the world has been unkind to them in this whole area. You see, we, we learn about these kinds of things very, very early on. You can go back to some of the most popular stories in children's literature. 
I mean, think about Cinderella. I mean, the handsome prince uh, was certainly not enraptured by Cinderella's intelligence. It was her small feet and wardrobe that got him going. And, and even more, think about Snow White and Sleeping Beauty. They netted their men while comatose. <laughs> Not a lot of personality when you're stretched out there on the thing. And children, very early on, uh, they easily conclude beauty is the key to love and the ticket to a person's heart. They just automatically feel that. You know, when we look at the story of Esther, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. Do I pay more attention to the genetically endowed and thus reinforce the message that uh, beauty is the key to love? Am I sensitive to the way that our society's obsession with physical beauty can damage those whose face and body type don't fit the image of what our culture says is beautiful? Uh, we need to do a heart check. Second question. Do I spend as much time cultivating a heart for God as I do in cultivating my outward appearance? And again, physical beauty is good. But it's been so gunked up in our society that it's blown way out of proportion. In one particular magazine, and we all know that highlight, you know, that uh, advertisers uh, are guilty of incredibly huge hyperbole, but we often obey or buy what they still buy their message. And one particular magazine highlighted a skin cream to curb the aging process in women. And the ad read, premature aging, don't let it happen to you. It's a woman's worst nightmare come true. And that's a pretty sweeping statement. I mean, personal attacks, muggings, rape, no problem for the skin-conscious woman. What really <laughs> wakes her up in a cold sweat is uh, premature aging. You know, that's what makes her skin crawl which produces more wrinkles. <laughs> but here in Orange County, especially this place, uh, every woman knows that every gray hair, every wrinkle, every blemish, every pound of body fat uh, reduces the price of an individual. But not with God. You know, one of the more revolutionary concepts in Scripture is found in Proverbs 16, verse 31. It says, A gray head is a crown of glory. And we have some gray heads here. We have a lot of people who would have gray heads, but they color. <laughs> but, uh, you know, aging comes because we live in a fallen world that's been ravaged by sin. That's why we age. One of these days, will be, it'll all be remedied. And we're all going to be in heaven, and we're all going to be 33 years old. <laughs> you know, I said that to my sons once, and one of them says, Dad, no, they're all going to be 14. <laughs> and, I, and I said, son, God would never do that to us. <laughs> he would never do that. You know? Uh, you know, right now, the person that walks in spiritual with spiritual integrity, if you walk with spiritual integrity, every 
gray hair. Every wrinkle is a reflection of the, of the accumulation of wisdom. You know, every mark of age is a beauty mark to God. Uh, ladies, when God looks at you, and I'll pick on the ladies a minute because this seems to matter more to the lady gender than to, to men, but, you know, when God looks at you as one created in his image and redeemed by his grace, his eyes sparkle with love. And may we never get pulled into the cult. This is who you are, is how you look. You know, I think about our children's ministry here and our youth ministry here and our adult ministry here. And I, I pray that we would be an oasis that rectifies the poison that oftentimes ruins people's lives. Uh, the world is hungry for that kind of community. The world is hungry for those people who light up with the excitement of Jesus because they place the ultimate value on character, what God happens to be doing in every single one of us. So uh, next week, we're going to pick it up. And uh, I don't often promote myself in this manner, but this is, it's going to really be good next week. So, <laughs> it really is. So, anyway, let me close in a word of prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we uh, so thank you, thank you that uh, we know you and we know your values and we treasure them, Father. And sometimes... Uh, uh, when we do forget and get caught up in some of the traditions and uh, um, aspects of this world that uh, seem to make false statements that have nothing to do with uh, how you made us and how much you love us. And I pray that um, churches all around our community and uh, far beyond would... Uh, understand what true beauty is and that you've given it to, to all individuals. Oh Lord, just the, and I pray Father that uh, we would grow in our understanding of this and uh, watch what we say so as not to be interpreted as being cruel or aloof or separated from the masses. Um, just guard us Father. Uh, it's uh, the best way to be inclusive of everyone. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.